Likely at one point or another, you've heard of the phrase herd mentality. It is a phenomenon of group psychology typically understood as the loss of your individual judgment when placed within a crowd of people. The will of the mob overcomes the will of the individual. Many professionals over the course of the past couple hundred years have sought to diagnose and define the issue. Each explanation resembles the next. In an article for The Guardian, Stuart Jeffries illustrates the history of the phenomenon. He states, Social psychologists have been long obsessed by the psychology of crowds. In 1895, French social psychologist Gustave Le Bon described crowds as mobs in which individuals lost their personal consciousness. His book, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, influenced Hitler and many later psychologists to take a dim view of crowds. After the war, German critical theorist Theodore Adorno wrote of the destruction, destructive nature of group psychology. Even as late as 1969, Stanford psychologist Philip Zibarno argued that the process of de-individualization makes participants in crowns less rational. Personally, I see no clearer example of contemporary mob mentality than an event that will take place later this month, Black Friday. Just to drive the point home, pause this and search online for a video of the Black Fridays from years past. There you will see mobs of people acting far outside the boundaries of politeness and manners and civility, clawing and shoving for presumably outrageous deals. It would not be uncommon to see security guards failing to maintain order while store employees standing on tables were desperate to find safety from the sea of greed. And South Park, the irreverent cartoon, once satirized this by reproducing the scenes of crowds clamoring through department stores only with a gratuitous amount of violence and death. And if you think that's a bit over the top, I suggest you going to blackfridaydeathcount.com where there is a tally of the deaths and injuries that take place on November 29th. Now, I wanted to mention all of this because today's saint was a victim, I believe, of mob mentality. Today, we commemorate Saint Josephat Kunasevich. Today, I will be reading from Butler's Lives of the Saints and giving you the story of the first saint of Ukraine canonized by Rome. In the end, we will see someone who, with everything that they were, gave their individuality not to a mob but to God. In the month of October 1959, at brest litovsk in Lithuania, the Orthodox Metropolitan of Kiev and five bishops representing millions of Ruthenians decided to seek communion with the Holy See. The controversies which followed this event were disfigured by deplorable excesses and violence, and the great upholder of Christian unity whose feast is kept today was called on to shed his blood for the cause, whence he is venerated as the proto-martyr of the reunion of Christendom. At the time of the Union of Brest, he was still a boy, having been born at Vladimir in Volhynia in 1580 or 1584, and baptized John. 
His father, a Catholic, was a Burgess of a good family called Kunasevich, who sent John to school in his native town and then apprenticed him to a merchant of Vilna. John was not particularly interested in trade and employed his spare time in mastering Church Slavonic in order that he might assist more intelligently at divine worship and recite some of the long Byzantine office every day. And he got to know Peter Arsudius, who was then the rector of the Oriental College at Vilna, and two Jesuits, Valentin Fabricus and Gregory Gruzevsky who took an interest in him and gave him every encouragement. John decided to be a monk and, in 1604, entered the monastery of the Holy Trinity at Vilna. He induced to join him there Joseph Benjamin Rutsky, a learned convert from Calvinism who had been ordered by Pope Clement VIII to join the Byzantine Rite against his personal wishes, and together the two young monks consecrated schemes for promoting union and reforming Ruthenian monastic observances. John Kusevich, who had now taken the name Josephat, was ordained deacon and priest, and speedily had a great reputation as a preacher, especially on behalf of the reunion with Rome. He led a most austere personal life, and added to a careful observance of the austerities of Eastern monastic life such extreme voluntary mortifications that he was often remonstrated with by the most ascetic. Meanwhile, the abbot of Holy Trinity, having developed separatist views, Ruski was appointed in his place, and the monastery was soon full. So Father Josephat was taken away from his study of the Eastern Fathers to help the foundation of new houses in Poland. In 1614, Ruski was made Metropolitan of Kiev, and Josephat succeeded him as abbot of Vilna. When the new metropolitan went to take possession of his cathedral, Joseph had accompanied him and took the opportunity of visiting the great monastery of the Caves of Kiev. The community of 200 monks was relaxed, and they threatened to throw the Catholic reformer into the river. He was not successful in his efforts to bring them to unity, but his personality and exhortations brought about a somewhat changed attitude and a notable increase of goodwill. The Archbishop of Poltolsk at this time was a very old man and a favorer of dissidents, and in 1617, Abbot Josephat was ordained Bishop of Vitebsk with right of succession to Poltolsk. A few months later, the old archbishop died, and Josephat was confronted with an eparchy which was as large in extent as it was degraded in life. The more religious people were inclined to schism through fear of arbitrary Roman interference with their worship and customs. Churches were in ruins and benefices in the hands of laymen. Many of the secular clergy had been married two and three times, and the monks were decadent. Josephat sent for some of his brethren from Vilna to help him and and got to work. He held synods in the central towns, published a catechism, and imposed its use, issued rules of conduct for the clergy, and fought the interference of the squires in the affairs of the local churches, at the same time setting a personal example of assiduous instructing and preaching 
administration of the sacraments, and visiting of the poor, the sick, prisoners, and the most remote hamlets. By 1620, the eparchy was practically solidly Catholic. Order had been restored, and the example of a few good men had brought about a real concern for Christian life. But in that year, a dissident hierarchy of bishops was set up in the territory affected by the Union of Brest, side by side with the Catholic one, and one Miletius Moritzky was sent as Archbishop to Poltosk, who began with great vigor to undo the work of the Catholic Archbishop. He spread a report that St. Josephat had, quote, turned Latin, that all his flock would have to do the same, and that Catholicism was not the traditional Christianity of the Ruthenian people. St. Josephat was at Warsaw when this began, and on his return he found that, though his Episcopal city was firm for him, some other parts of the eparchy had begun to waver. A monk called Sylvester had managed to draw nearly all the people of Vitebsk, Mogilev, and Orca to the side of Smortitsky. The nobility and many of the people adhered strongly to the Union, but St. Joseph could do little with three towns, and not only at Vitebsk, but even Vilna when the proclamation of the king of Poland that Josephat was the only legitimate archbishop of Potolsk was publicly read in his presence. There were riots, and the life of St. Josephat was threatened. Leo Sapia, the chancellor of Lithuania and a Catholic, was fearful of the possible political results of the general unrest, and lent too willing an ear to the heated charges of dissidents outside of Poland that Josephat had caused it that Joseph had caused it by his policy. Accordingly, in 1622, Sophia wrote, accusing him of violence in the maintenance of the Union, of putting the kingdom in peril from the Zaporowski Cossacks by making discord among the people, of forcibly shutting up non-Catholic churches, and so on. These and similar accusations were made in general terms, and their unjustifiability was aptly demonstrated by contemporary ad hoc testimony from both sides. The only actual fact of the sort is the admittance, the admitted one that Josephat invoked the aid of the civil power to recover the church at Mogilev from dissidents. Thus, the archbishop had to face misunderstanding, misrepresentation, and opposition from Catholics as well. He continued doggedly and fearlessly on his way, and, Vitebsk continuing to be a hotbed of trouble, he determined in October 1623 to go there in person again. He could neither be dissuaded nor would he take a military escort." Smotryski was fomenting agitation, his object doubtless being no worse than to drive his rival from the diocese. But his followers got out of hand, and a plot was laid to murder St. Josephat on November 12th. A priest named Elias was put up to go into the courtyard of the archbishop's house and to use insulting words to his servants about their master and their religion, and after several complaints, St. Josephat gave permission for him to be seized if it happened again. On the morning of November 12th, as the archbishop came to the church for the office of daybreak, 
He was met by Elias, who began to abuse him to his face. He therefore allowed his deacon to have the man taken and shut up in a room of the house. This was just what his enemies were waiting for. The bells of the town hall were rung, and a mob assembled, demanding the release of Elias and the punishment of the archbishop. After office, St. Josephat returned to his house unharmed and let Elias go with a warning, but the people broke in, calling for their victim and striking his attendants. St. Josephat went out to them. Amid cries of, Kill the Papist, he was brained with a halberg and pierced by a bullet. The mangled body was dragged out and contemptuously cast into the river Divna. St. Josephat was canonized in 1867, the first saint of the Eastern Churches to be formally canonized after process in the Congregation of Sacred Rites. 300 years later, on November 12, 1923, Pope Pius XI issued an encyclical entitled Ecclesia Dei, which celebrated the 300th anniversary of St. Josephat's martyrdom. And in it, concerning his martyrdom, he states, He was convinced that he would be martyred, and often spoke of the possibility of such an event occurring. In one of his famous sermons, he expressed a desire to be martyred. He prayed ardently to God for martyrdom, as if it, were, as if it would be for him a singular blessed gift. A few days before his death, when he was warned of plots that were being laid against him, he said, Lord, grant me the grace to shed my blood for the unity of the Church and in behalf of obedience to the Holy See. On Sunday, November 13, 1623, his desire was realized. Surrounded by enemies who had gone in search of the Apostle of Unity, he went forth, smiling and gladly, to meet his fate. He asked them, following the example of his Lord and Master, not to harm the members of his household, and then gave himself into their hands. He was set upon and killed in a most barbarous fashion. Despite his wounds, he did not cease till his dying breath to implore God's pardon for his murderers. I wanted to share this story of St. Josephat, not only because he's one of the most notable saints for the Ukrainian Catholic Church in the month of November, but also because there's this reoccurring theme for me lately. I was just interviewed on the podcast Theology of the Buddy, and there we talked about, me and and the host Chris talked about a a mutual friend we had who died, I think, eight years ago. His name was Paul. I had written a blog post about him on my blog, Hot Dogs and Scotch, about his nonconformity to the world about his unwillingness to go along with the tide, to go along with herd mentality. And it seems like, and and when I wrote that blog, it was during a time where there were notable Christians, um, popular Christians, um, publicly renouncing their faith. So for me, with all that happening, I had to take some time and think about why that was happening. One of those people being a notable author that my friend Paul had really enjoyed. Yet Paul's life was so drastically different now, and was different, from 
from this uh, from the author, and I forget his name is not coming to mind at the moment. The only real answer that I could really give myself or come up with was an unwavering fidelity. There's this really good book by Gabriel Bunge on the spiritual ailment of despondency. And one of the characteristics of despondency is becoming dissatisfied with the truth or with tradition and going on for the novel and new things, kind of taken away by uh, the next upcoming thing. And I think we all know what that's like. We see we're in a time of um, rampant content creation without there really being much content there, but it's always new and flashy, and we have those dumb superhero movies, and we have uh, remakes and remakes. We're just not satisfied with what we had. And we even do that liturgically. We try innovation and innovation and innovation to try to uh, seduce. No, that's, that's too much of a, too much of an insidious word, uh, more like, uh, attract people to church, but we forget why we're there to begin with. It's because we've become despondent with what we've had. And this desire for something new Something different, a new revelation, has brought us away from the self-disclosure of God in Jesus Christ. So today, in the quiet of your heart, let's have a conversation with St. Josephat, shall we? Let's talk to him. Let's ask him to pray for us, to give us the qualities that he had, and to pray for those many people today who we know have gone along with herd mentality and have given up their fidelity to Christ. So let's pray for those people. Let's pray that God would have extravagant mercy upon them, that he would reach their hearts again with the same message, with the same truth, the same self-disclosure of his heart that never ages and is always new. From today's Tropar, let's pray. You have become a brilliant light, O Martyr Josephat. You gave up your life for your sheep, like the good shepherd. You were slain by the lovers of heresy, and you have walked into the Holy of Holies to rest in the company of the angels. O long-suffering saint, we make this petition to you. Beg Christ, the Prince of Shepherds, to save our souls, and to number us among the sheep of his right hand. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Bill, and this has been your Daily Dose of Agios. St. Josephat, pray for us.